All right, we're live. This should be a show. This should be a show. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. As you can see, I'm in some mezzanine here in Madison Square Garden. That is where I am uh, because there was two events today. There was the media day, which I attended. Uh, Ariel was there. Mark Ramundi was there. Esther and Casey was there. And then the second day, second part of the day, was the open workouts, uh, which I am missing. Although I'm not really missing much because they're just working out. Then they're talking to Megan O'Leary, and the press can't really talk to them. So maybe I'm not missing much. A couple of words of warning. This this might be a show today. There are donks walking everywhere here, bothering me. So we may have someone interrupt us in the course of this. I don't know. I guess we'll see. And also, if you can hear very, uh, uh, I don't know if you can hear clearly or not. There are ambient noise everywhere because we're like literally. If you look, see here, right there. That's just outside on on. Uh, that would be thirty. Let's see. This is thirty first, so that would be thirty fourth over there. Thirty third, excuse me. Um, and so this is seventh right behind me. So there's just a lot of people coming and going. Even when there's no event here, there's just a lot of people um, making noise. So they're all looking at me, making strange faces. So this might be a show. I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. Anyway, uh, best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be on MMA Fighting, where this window is embedded. Um, if you have any questions about the UFC 217 Media Day, I'm here for that. But about 217 more generally, we can talk about that as well. Got to New York last night, had a crazy person on my Amtrak train. They had to, cops had to wrestle him. It was a disaster. All right, so this trip's been off to a great, and I showered this morning to get ready for this, and there was like 50,000 hairs in my bathtub. So it's been, it's been a great little run here in New York City. All right, so without further ado, I got my water there. I should be good. If there's any issues with the uh, stream, I don't know. Blame somebody else. All right, uh, let's get this going, shall we? And, of course, at around 2.15, assuming that I haven't been kicked out of here, I'm going to go to the Twitter machine at LThomasNews. You can use the hashtag chat wrappers, and I'll take your tweets as well. All right. So let's do this. First question. True, false. Number one. Rose beating Joanna would be the only upset from the main card. I don't know what that means. I mean, literally... If you're the underdog and you win, that would be an upset. So I don't, I don't understand the question. Uh, Bisping TKO's GSP. Probably not. Probably not. You never know, but probably not. Number three, UFC 27. So I'll say false. UFC 217 will do around 600k buys, not more, but it won't be too much of a success for the owners considering how bad this year was for them. Basically true. I mean, 600K is still really good, so uh, I wouldn't dismiss the number even if the year's been tough for them, but yes, I think it does about 600, and yes, it's been a down year. So, uh, Four, if RDA loses to Lawler and Masvidal loses to Thompson, Covington will get the shot at Woodley. False. Uh, Lawler might get a rematch. Um, 
Thompson, I don't really see much of a path to a title anytime soon. Um, but Covington just feels like he's a few fights away. Maybe not a whole lot. Maybe not a few. Maybe one or two as opposed to three, but some. Uh, number five, Hendricks makes weight this Friday. True. He did not look particularly bloated um, or out of shape, at least insofar as we could tell from today's media day. He looks to be in good spirits. He did not sound crazy. He looks to be substantially smaller than Bohashinya. Bohashinya's folks told me he's 205 today. He's going to make 186. Okay. He's got, I mean, I'm not saying he won't. He probably will, but he's got a bit of a drop. And when they faced off, there was a noticeable size difference, man. And you can see that in the pictures, but it was a stark relief in person. Bohashinya is huge. Uh, and then, oh, what fight are you most looking forward to this weekend? Got to be for me, Cody TJ. I mean, every year mileage may vary on this one. I frankly, I find their rivalry tiresome and exhausting at this point. Uh, and frankly, in terms of the, you know, were you or were you not a trader to team alpha male angle, I find it not even, even interesting. However, the fact that they are rivals in the same weight class, that they used to train together, that um, they have these incredible advanced skill sets, all that seems very, very interesting to me. So that part... I really, really like it. That fight has everything you could basically want. It's got enough rivalry. It's got enough uh, youth for a title, five rounds, advanced skill sets, storyline, grudge match. Like, it's the works. So, for me, that's the way to go. All right. But flight is really flying, flying under the radar. Duffy Vic is a big one. Um, oh, um, Ion or Eon, however you pronounce it. Aeon, Kutalaba. Old boy looks intense. He had a crazy face off. Duffy Vic is good. Looking forward to seeing Kutalaba. Um, Bohashinya, I think, is, I mean, I'm bringing it up, but I haven't seen a lot of talk about it, but that's a big one. You, know, you have to recall Brazil has. You know, uh, just this entire class of legends that are all kind of fading away at this point. Uh, Maya losing, Machida losing, Silva's, Anderson Silva's kind of old. Who knows what's happening with Vanderlei? No, first one, Garrett's retired. Second one is now suspended. Um, Shogun's on his last legs. You know, there's just not, there's not a new crop of Brazilian stars yet. So that's something actually we don't really talk a whole lot about um, for such an important and dominant market. It looks like some of the next big crop a lot of them are coming out of uh, Europe and North America as well. Uh, but Brazil needs a big star. You know, we'll see what you know, Jose Aldo's not getting any younger. And Bohashini is 26. And, and I don't know if this is too big of a fight for him in his development. His people tell me that he's completely ready. But what else would they say? So that's the one that's got really, really intrigued. Brazil really needs to hand the baton off to somebody. Um, he seems like he could be a great candidate for somebody to hand the baton to, but he's got to go in and get it done on Saturday. So that's the one I really care about. Uh, okay. Biggest takeaway from the UFC 217 media day. Um, Jorge Masvidal is not in a great mood, but that could just be attributed to any number of things. Johnny Hendricks, like I said, I think will make the weight 
but you never know. James Vick was really pissed off, like really pissed off. He, it's not that he was, it's not that he didn't think Duffy was a worthy adversary. It was that he thought, you know, what do I have to do to get a ranked opponent? Apparently he was offered a fight with Evan Dunham. Dunham said no. Apparently he was offered a fight with Dustin Poirier, but then Poirier got offered Anthony Pettis. And even then he was like, I get why you would take Pettis. He's got a bigger name. In Vic's view, he said this explicitly, Pettis is an easier fight. You take that for what you want. But he was basically saying what's happening is the guys in the top 10 and even the top 15 to an extent, they're circling the wagons and they don't want to face anyone but themselves. So you got guys like Duffy and Vic on the outside that have to fight each other who are very, very difficult guys to fight. And then there's no real rankings upside to it. So how do I get to that next level? This, this goes back to this conversation we had about, you know, what Donald Cerrone did for Darren Till. You saw how thankful Darren Till was, man. You saw how thankful he was because these guys are – it's harder and harder and harder based on rankings to get a guy to get out of his comfort zone and fight you in a way that maybe it didn't used to be. And other didn't used to be rankings, of course, the way that there are now. But um, you get the idea. They're, these guys, especially a lightweight where, you know, number – what's the difference between number 17 and number 12, between number 17 and number 7? Sometimes nothing. I mean, it's a very, 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 very difficult division. So you got to fight tough guys with no name value. And then the ones who do have name value just want to keep trading off of the other one. He says it's very, very hard to get in. So he was really upset about that. Um, uh, just be on the lookout for that kind of stuff. Favorite interview? Probably the one with James Vick. And most interesting thing said. I don't know about the most interesting, but apparently Bohashinia's new nickname is The Eraser. So... There you go. All right, trash talk in MMA. Uh, I, this person writes, I'm a huge fan of WWE and pro wrestling in general and really like a good promo that gives meaning or heat to a story. All right. However, the best of the heel promos are usually not just random trash talk and insults, but the need to reflect the character speaking them while remaining entertaining and something you want to watch. This is something I feel McGregor gets as, as even though I'm not the biggest fan of his approach, his trash talk is about building himself up as this larger-than-life figure that makes his appearances entertaining. Bisping and Jajacek are other fighters who I feel get that aspect of the trash talk and fight promotion, even if they aren't draws in that sense. Now, the reason I bring that up is that I am, a, is a, I am excuse me, am I being too harsh in feeling that much of the current attempts of most MMA fighters like Covington to emulate the McGregor approach is missing that crucial nuance. And they usually just end up coming across as boorish idiots. And that furthermore, their attempts to just go further with their insults starting to slightly hurt themselves. Well, it's definitely not hurting Colby Covington. Uh, I don't think that there's any evidence to suggest that. Now, you can say... Um, well, what about the backlash from his teammates? What about the backlash from his teammates? He seems deeply unconcerned. And when we say teammates, this is not the Houston Astros or the L.A. Dodgers where having some kind of a bond and shared understanding of purpose and the ability to get along with another one, at least professionally, has extreme importance. Um, a lot of these big super gyms like American Top Team, and in particular American Top Team, they have their own cliques inside. It's so big that there's some cliques that don't interact as much with other ones. Some guys work with a certain set of coaches. Some guys don't. And so it seems to me Covington, whether it's with Laborio, who left, whether it's Amanda Nunes, he doesn't care, doesn't have any interaction with her. Whether it's Bigfoot Silva, he claims to not even know who that person is, which is just him being him. But you get the idea. Like, 
if there are professional consequences to the what he was saying for his team environment, okay, that would be something. But it doesn't appear that's the case. Now, you might say, well, he's reviled uh, by big portions of the fan base who are really put off by his trash talk. Okay. Um, I'm certainly willing to believe that. I don't I don't endorse any of his messages, but you know, is it was it as well finessed as what Conor McGregor delivers? No. Was it as well finessed or humorous as what Chael Sonnen delivered? No. But this over the top um what do you want to say? Over the top you know, what do you want a, a dickhead role he's trying to play? You know, he's trying to go there and antagonize audiences on purpose. It doesn't have the same level of entertainment value, but it has a similar level of effect in generating attention for himself. Colby Covington was just a guy before all this, and he's a guy that most people don't like. He's a guy that most people don't want to pay attention to, and he's a guy, or at least people say they don't want to pay attention to, but in the end... He's never been more important. He's never made more noise. He's never been more a focal point. I hadn't had him on my show until this past week. He hasn't been on a lot of shows until recently. You know, if the argument is it's not working, well, okay, he's not a pay-per-view superstar at this point. No, I mean, he's very far away from that. And maybe there's an upper bound limit to what this kind of trash talk can provide. But as it stands today, is he a bigger name than he was a year ago by virtue of what he's doing? Yeah, of course he is. Of course he is. And this sort of goes back to this question about what is what is okay to say and what is not okay to say. And this is a debate where there's not going to be any real consensus because there's no rule book about this. We're not interpreting off some you know mutually agreed upon set of norms. But what I would basically say is what's out of bounds is the kind of thing that can get the business into trouble. If you're allowing fighters to say things that are so outrageous uh, that sponsors are losing interest, that fans are losing interest, that uh, other stakeholders in the executive leadership um, or other members of the community are really finding it divisive to the point of, um, uh, you know, checking out or uh, just sort of really damaging the brand, then, yeah, that's probably too far. I don't think we're anything close to that. Here's the reality that I just think folks need to accept. A lot of people have made different points to me about what Colby Covington said and that they didn't like. And again, everything he said is factually false. Brazil is not a dump. Those people are not filthy animals. That's not what this is about. It's not measuring the truth value of it. It's a question of what is and what isn't out of bounds. Um, you know, your biggest star dropping the six-letter F word, again, not the end of the world, but not a good look. That's probably a bridge too far, Right. Uh, Colby Covington, in my judgment, went right up to the line, danced on it, but didn't exactly cross it. And the thing that everyone always brings up is, again, Chael was charming, and Connor does it in a very effective way. All right, those guys might do it in a, in a better way, but we're just sort of talking about what is topically off-bounds. What is wrong with a fighter antagonizing an audience? I, I don't understand. It's not clear to me why that's a problem. If they antagonize an audience to the point that the audience tunes out, that's one thing. Those Brazilians are not tuning out. They want to see Colby Covington get his ass kicked. They were they were laughing. I go back and look on the video when they were chucking whatever they were throwing at him as he was walking out of the uh, of the arena. I'm not saying that they love Colby Covington, but they love to hate him. Uh, and so, to me, it's like, why can't you insult the audiences? I, I mean, you go to Brazil. Look, Brazil's a wonderful place full of wonderful people. L let's be absolutely clear about this. It's a gem. It's Brazil is a gem, but. I don't really like, personally, I don't really like the way that they cheer at the UFC shows. 
they're dead silent for anybody who's not from Brazil, and they go apeshit for anybody that is. And that's cool if you want to be a nationalist. Like, that's your choice as a fan base to do that. But I don't think that's really cause for saying that they're great MMA fans other than they have super strong support for the sport vis-a-vis their own guys. Um, why shouldn't Ameri- why, why, why does an American have to go down there and say, oh, geez, guys, sorry you don't like me, but I love you, and it's not reciprocated. No, you don't have to do that. You know, again, you don't. You can disparage the country. These are not true claims, but why is it off limits for a guy to? Uh, I won't say exactly return the favor, but why does he have to coddle them? He doesn't at all. And frankly, if there's any audience you're not going to coddle. The the number one audience to not coddle is the Brazilian audience, because they'll never they'll never. The, the, there's almost never a circumstance where if you're not Brazilian, they'll do anything beyond silence for you. So, give it back to them. You can say, personally, you found what he said off-putting. No problem. I, don't, I can't argue with that. You may say, you know, uh, you know, this isn't nearly as charming as what Chael Sonnen did. Alright, well, Chael Sonnen also said he was surprised Brazil had computers, that Ed Soares worshipped a pygmy god, and that these people played in the mud. He just delivered it with a wink and a smile and a little bit of humor. But why is that any better? That's not any better. It's not any better at all. And he he sort of made his points more about the opponents than the audience. But again, if a fighter wants to pick a fight with an audience, good for him. Hope it works. I, I, let's see. The UFC is and will probably always be a little rough around the edges for the mainstream sports fan. I guess it's part of the attraction. We don't want the stars to be generic, boring, and politically correct all the time, but do you think it would benefit the UFC if they tried to clean up its act a little? Is it the way to go toward a broader acceptance of the sport, or do you think they will lose something valuable on the way? Pros and cons. Yeah, like I said, I think you have to... Look, it's one thing to say... I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I want to make a very clear point here. It is one thing to say I personally endorse the truth value of Colby coming to the statements, and I don't, and I'm imagining most of you don't either. It is another thing to say to what extent do we want to provide latitude to fighters to say what they want to say, to be who they want to be, at least as a public persona, um, and to use creative fiction to attention for themselves. And I personally believe that there is a line you can cross, but I believe in giving fighters wide latitude. What we allow versus what we don't allow, I think you should allow for a lot, um, even if even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable in that space. The things you should really make off limits are the things that are truly damaging, truly backward, truly unjustifiable. Everything else, to me, to me I think you need to keep fair game. You know, Ricardo Mayorga was saying, I mean, go back and go back and look at the stuff Ricardo Mayorga said about what he was going to do to De La Hoya's wife before their fight. You know, intensely personal, you know, deeply offensive stuff, like offensive to any woman who would, 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 could be within earshot of it. Really bad. You know, we're talking about references to breast milk and stuff. I mean, bad. Okay. Um, again, if that caused some kind of uproar and it would really damage the sport, that's one thing. But I think a lot of people realize that fighters are rough around the edges and there's a certain amount of latitude you have to grant. 
and we can debate what the edges are, but I believe in more freedom of latitude, not less. Okay, Holdsworth comments on Dillashaw. Were you surprised to see Chris Holdsworth finally comment on the allegations made by Faber and others about Dillashaw and just seeming to support everything that was claimed? And did it in any way change your opinions or views of the Dillashaw team alpha male story? No, not even a little bit. Frankly, I'm exhausted by the story. I'm surprised more people aren't. I don't care about the he said, she said aspect of it anymore. Um, certainly, I have no idea what happened in that training room. We are reliant upon what everyone else has said as a means of um, understanding the dynamic. But, I mean, it's just – I just don't understand the Team Alpha Mill approach here. And I've I've always got along really well with the Team Alpha Mill guys. They've always treated me well. Um, they seem like stand-up dudes. I just don't understand their arguments. I really don't. So there's only two possibilities here, really. One is that they're not telling the truth, uh, that they're just out and out lying, um, in which case you can't believe them. I don't find that to be the case. What I think is that they're retelling the story from their perspective um, and how true to, to objective reality that is is debatable, but they, they seem to believe it. And so to me, it's the question of if he did all these things and what you say is true, why on earth did you allow him to be in the team? I come from the child. I'm a child of divorced parents. I remember when my parents got divorced. They were siced. They were super pleased to not be with each other anymore. It was a great day in their life to be rid of the other person. Um, they accused him of betrayal. They accused him of being a Benedict Arnold. They accused him of... Um, to disrespecting the team and its integrity by being selfish. That's not really something you say about somebody who you, who was concussing people, taking steroids in their judgments and any number of other indiscretions that they brought up after the fact. Like, do I think that they're lying? I don't think they're lying. I think they see the world a certain way. I think they see TJ a certain way. And so they're just trying to relay, t you know, the, the world as they understand it. Again, how true to form that is, I have no idea. But, you know, that you didn't kick him out to me, kind of an issue, to be honest. Um, that the fact that no one else has ever made these complaints about TJ Dillashaw outside of Team Alpha Male, kind of suspicious, to be honest. Like, this TJ Dillashaw does not appear to leave a trail of destruction everywhere he goes. There's been other fighters who have done that, who everywhere they've gone, they've left a sour, you know, taste in people's mouths. I don't hear any of that from any of the people that TJ Dillashaw has worked with outside of the guys from Team Alpha. And maybe maybe it's he acted bad there and he learned after that. That could be. Uh, all I'm saying is I just feel like getting into the minutia of their dispute is pointless because there's really no way to know. And I've seen fighters involved with teams before. And when they're with those teams, they say things. And I think they say those things because they believe them. But then when they leave those teams later on, they start saying things that are a little bit different. There's almost, uh, and this is not exclusive to Team Alpha Male. This is true of many, many teams. There's almost like the Stockholm Syndrome thing going on where, you know, guys can be a part of a team and they just really see the world a certain way. And then when they leave, their perspective begins to change a little bit. Um, I'm not here to say that, you know, if Chris Holdsworth left Team Alpha Male tomorrow, all of a sudden him and TJ would be high five. And maybe he really doesn't like TJ. And maybe they had a really bad experience. I think the point is this. There's really no way to determine the truth value of what any of these guys are saying. And that goes for TJ Dillashaw as well. But all I can tell you is 
there's not a lot of evidence for me personally to look at TJ Dillashaw as a bad guy. To me, I, he probably could have been a little bit more forthright in the way in which he wanted to leave Team Alpha Male or at least adjust his relationship with them. Maybe he made a mistake there, but uh, I don't think leaving Team Alpha Male or any team is in any way some kind of serious offense. All this bullshit that people spew about, you got to have loyalty. It's a business transaction. Please stop with this third grade level of, you know, uh, mafioso omerto loyalty. It's just not true. It's not real. It's a business relationship. Um, that doesn't mean you don't genuinely care about these people. That means that doesn't mean you don't genuinely, you know, absolutely value uh, to what extent um, they have impacted your life. You can you can hold these things simultaneously. They are not mutually exclusive. But at the end of the day, it's not your family, you know, and they, they might be your friends. But if your friends get mad at you for trying to improve your situation, then maybe you guys were all that close to begin with. Uh, I really just don't buy the idea that it's not OK to leave a team, including that one. And uh, yeah, there you go. You can see the dogs behind me. They're coming. Looking for some camera time. <laughs> uh, OK. Could you comment on the timing of the interview? In the lead-up to their ultimately postponed fight in July, several members of Team Alpha Male kept on referring to multiple different interviews to this now almost mythical knockout called on video. Is this a coincidence, or perhaps is Team Alpha Male trying to play mind games to the media to mess with TJ's mojo? I don't know. Why would Holdsworth wait until literally years later to verify this event, despite refuting these claims in the past? I don't know. We reached out to him before. Didn't want to talk. This was a long time ago. I don't, um... Yeah, who knows? Maybe he thought now was the right time, now that Cody's fighting him. Again, I, I did hear that that I, I did hear that TJ was incredibly competitive. Um, that even when they would go to drink water, he would race to the fountain to be the first one to get a drink. I can see that a train situation getting heated and something bad happening. That that is to me perfectly reasonable to to believe. But again, either he didn't do those things. And they're lying, or he did those things, and they kept them around anyway. And then they were mad he left. I just something here just doesn't feel right, and I don't know exactly which part of it it is, but hmm. someone says my two cents. If TJ was really such a terrible teammate, then why didn't Team Alpha Milk kick him out years ago? Yes, precisely. Not a word about this when he was on the team and kicking butt. All of it sounds like sour grapes to me. I mean, you guys can draw your own inferences at this point, but there's nothing wrong with leaving a team. Who else has complained about TJ Dillashaw outside of Team Alpha Male? You know, and I like Cody Garbrandt, and I realize he's standing up for his people, and I respect that too, but I'm, I'm over. I'm completely over their beef. I'm excited about their fight, but I'm over their beef. Um, someone says, this card at MSG seems light years behind last year's. It feels light years. I don't know if it is light years. The depth of the card isn't great. Y'all are just, uh, not y'all, but that's not true at all. Let me, for folks who may not realize, the card is tremendous. Like, really good. Really good. Let's see here. Here's the card, top to bottom. I want to make sure I got this right. Bisping St. Pierre, Garbrandt Dillashaw, and Jacek Namunas, three title fights. Killer. Wonder Boy versus Macedal, excellent. Hendricks versus Bohashinia, perfect. That main card is awesome. Then you go to Fox Sports 1. Vic Duffy, good. Harris Godbeer, okay, not great, whatever. Uh, St. Prue, Corey Anderson should be decent. And then Randy Brown versus Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall was on fire today at the media day as well. 
then you go to Fight Pass. Kutulaba takes on this donk whose name I can't pronounce. They had a amazing face-off. Alexio Linick is back against Curtis Blades, and then Ayman Zahabi taking on Ricardo Ramos. This is an excellent card. You can say whatever you want about the UFC this year or pay-per-views generally or the main event. This is an excellent card. It just is. Um, so I don't really agree with that assessment. What, if anything, do you think is missing from this weekend's big NYC UFC card? This is the thing that's missing to me. Last week, I just felt like there was no discussion about it. But as I mentioned before on the MMA beat, I can believe that this still might do pretty well on pay-per-view because the UFC 214 experience, where you showed up, it was like, I don't know how much you know, enthusiasm there is for this. And then time for it passed and time passed and time passed and time passed. And by Saturday, you were like, okay, this is a roaring blaze now. Now, I don't know if we're going to get to roaring blaze territory with this. But I guess what I'm saying is you do have to recognize that it just takes a second for audiences to wake up and they can't turn their heads to a UFC event until all the rest of them are done, which they weren't last weekend. So the, the week begins here. Here's what I've seen. As each day has passed, I've seen increasing interest. As each day has passed, I've seen a lot more um, paid media, busbacks here in the city, social media and digital media ads everywhere. I've seen Bisping, uh, Bisping was on my show, he did a radio tour today. GSP has been on all kinds of stuff. And I think things are slowly beginning to build. I think, again, by the end, it'll probably do okay. Here's what's missing to me. There's earned media, there's lots and lots of paid media. Paid media, they really did a good job with. There's no narrative. There's no story. Now, you and I know the story. Hey, GSP's been gone for four years. Hey, Michael Bisping, you know, didn't really have the career he wanted until the very end, and now he's having everything. But that's even surface level. I think there's another level to the story about where does GSP rank all time, and, you know, why come back now? And and for Michael Bisping, you know, he's even in this fight, he's still the underdog. You know, GSP's been gone four years, never fought a middleweight, and he's the, he's the favorite. I mean, you know, maybe he'll win, but that still feels like a part of a story you can tell. And... Another part of the story is, do people remember St. Pierre? Like, there's just no, there's no forward thinking from the UFC and pushing a narrative. Now, you don't want them to push a false narrative. You want them to push the right one. But they did that with 214. Remember that promo? They didn't hide from that John Jones past at all. They embraced it. They used it. And it felt awesome. It felt real. It felt genuine. It felt exciting. You know, and maybe if they did it here, it wouldn't have helped. I, maybe it would have. It just feels like I don't think this event is poorly promoted. I really don't feel like that would be true. The amount of media that the headliners are doing, the amount of media that everyone else is doing, and again, the amount of media that's paid that UFC did is a lot. It's a lot. It just feels like to me it's under promoted. It wasn't promoted to its full potential. It wasn't promoted to an extent that really maybe it deserved. And I know that some folks were not enthused by the rollout of this fight where they didn't have a contract and then it fell off and it came back together again and that the fight feels a little gimmicky. All that's true. All that's true. But addressing those criticisms, talking about some of these things, it just makes everything more authentic. It gives the, it gives the headliners a chance to answer those criticisms, to talk about these storylines to do it in a genuine and frankly enthusiastic way. And uh, I think that's what's missing. That's really the part that's not here. Ultimately, I don't think that will shipwreck this, but you know, what, what could have been, what will it be? will be an interesting question when this is all over. 
Dylan Perry. Whilst a fun fight, has Darren Till gone down the wrong path by pairing himself up with Mike Perry? I mean that by actually acknowledging him as a potential opponent. Has Till bought into the fact that this will be a fun fight that the fans want to see? And is it also winnable for him? Uh, but will this fight actually elevate him further up the ladder? He currently sits ahead of Perry, so why look back? This is the exact problem that James Vick was talking about. Right now, I don't think Perry, if he beats Ponzinibbio, which is a big F, would be the right fight for Till, and he would be better targeting Masvidal, Wonderboy, and Covington. But if he backed away from this rivalry with Perry, then would it look like he had bottled, a.k.a. U.S. translation, chickened out of a fight with a heavy hitter like Perry? I just think you kind of want the fights. I mean, yes, you can make a rankings argument. But I think if you're Till, you believe you can beat any of these guys. Um, the fight with Perry is not so great in terms of you know, an immediate title shot. But it also doesn't hurt along the way to have a fight against a guy who you know is going to bring it. You know, Mike Perry's not going to wrestle you to death. He's going to absolutely go out there and slug it out. And uh, that creates an opportunity for a memorable fight and a memorable finish. It's good to have rivalries. It's good to have enthusiasm. It's good to have... Um, a, a guy who's got a chip on his shoulder. There's other benefits to fighting sometimes beyond just the, the rankings. Now, the rankings obviously a pretty important one, maybe the most important one in some respects. Um, but if you're asking, are there reasons to take fights outside of that that can still buttress your career? Yes, the answer is yes. Does UFC 217 have extended pay-per-view time? I don't know. I think so, given how it could go. But I don't, I'm not, I'll ask. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Let me get a sip of water here. Hang on. The dogs are looking. Those dogs are looking for camera time. All right. Okay, since you don't make predictions for the site anymore, can you please break down how you see Bisping GSP going down in your head? To me, it's either it's either going to look like the Tim Kennedy fight with Bisping, or I don't know, almost like the Dennis Kang fight. Like I do expect Saint Pierre to get takedowns early. The question is, if he can stop them, what can he do? Both guys, both guys like to jab. So it's not like they're heavy, heavy hitters otherwise. But when Bisping wants to pour it on and can really feel comfortable with his takedown defense, he can. Um, like he did in the Dennis Kang fight, just blowing him up with knees. So I think it's going to look something like that. Really, it's just a function of what Bisping is going to do to um, solve the problem. You know, I spoke to Bisping yesterday. He told me he actually saw two kids. I think, I think one of them wrestles at Rutgers called uh, Elder and I think Alex Cruz. They found them on Instagram. It's two brothers, two wrestlers, and they were just tearing people up and putting highlights on Instagram. So Jason Perillo hit him up, DM, was like, do you guys want to help train Michael Bisping for his fight with St. Pierre? I, I don't think those are the only wrestlers he brought in, but he did bring in those two, and he said that those guys were amazing for the camp, that they had an awesome attitude. They were green, uh, but they wanted to fight MMA anyway, and that they were you know, young and um, hungry and and talented and he says it made all the difference in the world he said before the tim kennedy fight he just trained with a bunch of strikers and was 
unprepared for Kennedy wrestling him like that. So to me, it's like either St. Pierre is going to get those takedowns or he's not. And if he's not, then it becomes a question of to what extent Michael's going to calibrate his offense around it. He is pretty good about, about you know, jab crosses, but he's not a big leg kick guy. I don't think he's going to throw a lot of leg kicks against St. Pierre anyway to avoid the takedown. It's really going to be a bit of a boxing contest, and I think that's going to be a function of if you're stuffing the takedowns, how how well are you stuffing the takedowns? Are you stuffing them so well that you're allowed, if you've allowed yourself to now walk him down? Because if you can walk him down, you can get St. Pierre backing up, number one. That makes any subsequent attempts for St. Pierre harder to come by. And two, it then you could get him tall against the fence. You can get a takedown of your own. Um, it just be, it makes it a lot easier for Bisping to play his game on the feet as a, as a consequence of that. But even if he's in Bisping stuffing the takedowns, and then not acting upon it afterwards, you know, it's a bit of a problem. He's he's lost a couple fights like that. He lost the Kennedy fight like that. He lost the Evans fight. That was a 205 like that. And he lost the Sonnen fight like that, where he was able to either not stop the takedowns or stop him just enough to keep it close, but then not really push to that next level, even though, um, you know, he had some some reasonable success there. So to me, it's like he has to stop the takedown and then really step on the gas a little bit. You got to back St. Pierre up. You got to hurt him. You got to make him take desperation shots. You got to really make him struggle. And you saw against Johnny Hendricks, that's possible. So it says Bisping is bigger and harder to take down. If GSP can't get the takedown, is he A? GSP is, no, excuse me. GSP is A, going to tire quickly, trying, and B. We'll lose confidence and see you'll have to strike with Bisping, which favors Bisping. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Look, I think we can all agree that having a panel of judges decide the outcome of a fight is not the right way. I don't know that we can all agree with that. We can agree that it's a flawed process. Recently, Joe Rogan recommended an alternative to this on one of his fight companions, which he said. Uh, that we could have an online voting system where the people allowed to score the fight are MMA experts, black belts and such, and MMA journalists. Do you think this would be a better than the current system we have? No. No, I don't think it would be a much worse system. Or at least no real dramatic improvement. Um, I've said this before, I'll say it again. We don't know what's going to work until we've proven it works. Everyone thinks they've got a great idea. Hey, what about this system? What about that system? What about this tweak? What about that change? What about them? Until there is concrete evidence that this is a better way to go about it, we don't really know. I'm all in. I'm all into the idea of uh, trying new things, if that's what you're asking. But this, like, this notion that like these things are just quite obviously better suggestions. Years ago, it wasn't that people necessarily loved the 10-9 must system, but it wasn't exactly clear years ago what was wrong with it or what the obvious fix to it was. And we're still pretty far away from that, but we at least have some idea. But it took a long time to see that there are pretty clear deficiencies, especially as MMA changes. So change is needed. Iteration is for sure needed. But we, whatever that iteration is, then has to be tested over and over and over and over and over and over again to see what kind of, you know, because then guys might start changing the way they fight, you know. Um, 
it has to be suggested. Strong evidence has to be indicated to, to give it a, a try. And then we have to experiment. And that's the only way. That is the only way. We'll say having no time limit is a good idea. Having a no time limit is an absolute disaster of an idea. Uh, Demi and Maya's takedowns or lack thereof. All right. Looking at Demi and Maya's recent fights, one would think that Demian has no idea what he's doing when it comes to taking down opponents. Was it his lack of wrestling prowess that failed him in taking down Colby and Tyron, or was it just the fact that he was up against world-class wrestlers? What is your take on this? Okay, none of that's true. Number one, you're not a world-class wrestler until you wrestled on the world level. Right, so if you're an all-American wrestler, um, you're a national-class wrestler. But until you've wrestled, until you've made a world team and you've wrestled in an accomplished way on the world level, that's not who you are. It's not to say you're not very, very good. Tyron Woodley is obviously very good. Colby Covington is obviously very good. Um, but Daniel Cormier is a world-class wrestler. Yoel Romero is a world-class wrestler. Ben Askren is a world-class wrestler. The, rest, the other ones are not world-class wrestlers. Sorry. Uh, number one. Number two. Got to get you all to watch the Monday Morning Analyst. Uh, we've been over this a lot. So here's what happens with Demi and Maya. Demi and Maya's game has basically been figured out because you... The reason why he looked impotent against Woodley and he looked impotent against uh, Covington but did not look impotent against Masvidal is because the Masvidal fight was a bit of a turning point in terms of strategy against him because Masvidal was very clearly able to stop the first attempt. But Maya's first attempt is not great. His first attempt is merely a setup for his second attempt or his third attempt. Right? If he can get you with a basic single leg, he will, but or a double. But often he can't. What he can't is what he what he what he ultimately gets is you sprawl in some kind of way, you stuff it, and then what typically happens is, and you're taught this way, because you want to beat the arm back. Right? My arms are strong here. That's why you get a good bench press. But if my arm is pushed back, it's not very strong as a as a controlling mechanism. Here it's nice and tight. Right? Here it's nice and loose. So a lot of times guys will stuff and then turn an angle on them, right? You, you, you drop a hip to one side and cut an angle. He anticipates that. And what he wants you to do is to cut that angle so that he can shoot underneath on a second or third attempt by pulling half guard on you. So if you just make his takedowns about the first attempt, number one, they're easier to, to stop. And number two, it makes him look bad because he's wrestling on his knees and there's no real drive, you know, but that's not what his takedown's about. And he fooled all those guys, all those guys whose back he took and he just took them down. All these guys were sprawling or pushing down and they were creating angles for him. And he just right underneath baseball slid into half guard. And then from there it was over for you. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a wrap after that. Uh, no one could beat him once he gets there, basically maybe Jake Shields or something. And so, to me, uh, 
what Mas the Masvidal fight was, I think, a bit of a wake-up call, where Woodley was able to beat him by, you know, grip-breaking, but also just smart strategy about if I if I don't cut an angle on him, he has no real way to create a second effort. Go back and look at how Colby Covington stopped takedowns once he sprawled. He never gave him an angle. It was straight ahead. Because once you give that, it's over. He can just shoot underneath. So, number one, those guys are not world-class wrestlers because that's a real term. They're, they're amazing, but that's not the same thing as being world-class. And number two, um, now he is a world-class fighter, but number two, his game has been figured out. It might take somebody of an all-American level to stop it, but if you're that level and you practice not creating a second and third chance for him, his game has been figured out. That's, to me, the real takeaway. They have game planned around. There's a certain way you stuff his takedowns. And if you do, he's very manageable. If you don't, he'll take you back and choke you out. Some donkey just looking at me. Uh, Bisping, the best fighter ever. I'm going to guess the answer is no. Hear me out on this one. And this person says, I don't even consider myself a Bisping fan. He's far from the most talented, athletic, or creative. But if the definition of a fighter is, quote, someone who gets up after being knocked down, it's not what the definition of a fighter is, then Bisping is the hands-down best the UFC has ever had. The knockout of the hands of Dan Henderson at UFC 100 was absolutely brutal. Yes, it was. Then he loses badly to Rockhold. Looks like he is about to get finished by Anderson Silva. Comes back, wins that fight. Gets the rematch with Rockhold, knocks him out. Gets the rematch with Henderson and beats him on his farewell fight. I have to admit, I never liked Bisping in the beginning, but he has earned my respect toward the latter part of his career. It doesn't make him the best fighter ever. And a fighter is not somebody who gets knocked down and gets up. That's just some sort of aspirational hallmark card, you know, a way of talking about their perseverance, which is fine. Um, in fact, even good, right? You want to talk about their um, athletic courage, right? But what makes Bisping so interesting is he makes this all about USADA, which there might be something to be said for that. But to me, it's, I think you have pinpointed it quite accurately, which is to say, you know, that knockout at 100, man, where it was not just the shot that put him down, but then Hendo comes in and lands that vicious elbow and turns that into a logo, you know. Uh, and all the other setbacks he suffered through the court of the Vitor Belfort one, you know. The defining feature of Michael Bisping is that he is never mentally deterred. Most guys, when they get just abused like that, um, something happens to them afterward. Look at Ronda Rousey. You know, she was unstoppable, walk through anything, beat anybody, and then she gets absolutely housed by Holly Holm. Now, granted, we don't have a huge sample size after that, but after that, she was never the same, it appeared to me. She never recovered from that. Uh, and a lot of people, after vicious KOs, never recover. So what makes Michael Bisping incredible, and this, I mean, absolutely true, is, is he good at jiu-jitsu? Yeah, but he's not the best. Uh, does he have good cardio? He has great cardio, but that's not like, you know, it's really important, really important. It's not some amazing feat, right? 
Does he have good striking? Absolutely, but he doesn't have huge power. Does he have good wrestling? No doubt about it, but he's not some world-class wrestler. So, like, how has he been able to succeed? It's because in his career, he never, ever let setback. And the kinds of setback that not only would affect you or me, but the kinds of setback that affects fighters, even he has been immune to that. Even he has found ways to never let him ever change his opinion about who he was. He always had this confidence that I am the person who I think I am. And most people in life, and frankly, all walks of life, they think they're somebody and they've had some successes and some failures. And those usually recalibrate that. And after the failures, they recalibrate down a little bit about who they think they are to be. That This is just a natural reaction. He never did that. He never did that. And so now that his body doesn't perform the way that it should, he told me his knees are in constant pain. Think about that. Knees are in constant pain. His eyes all fucked up. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't change his belief about what's going to happen on Saturday. It doesn't change anything. He absolutely thinks he's going to go in there and shut this guy down and get his hand raised and whatever that happens after that, we don't know. But uh, he never took his own almost mortality uh, as a flood being seriously. He just knew if you kept swinging the axe, eventually the tree falls. Amazing. Amazing what he's been able to accomplish simply by, in many ways, willpower. When everyone else let themselves get discouraged or run down or old or anything, he just said, keep believing, keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. And to do that after being, you know, viciously KO'd, it's just, it's a very rare thing. There was a time when I was thinking to myself, why are these boxers, after they get viciously KO'd, changed afterwards? You don't see that in MMA. Diego Sanchez is the same way. You know, a guy gets viciously KO'd, more or less doesn't change who he is. In some ways, that's almost dangerous in his case. But uh, I thought, what's wrong with these boxers, these old ways of believing that if you get knocked out, all of a sudden you're a different person? But now you're starting to see it in MMA too. It's just that certain guys don't are not deterred by this. They have perseverance in a way that just most people will never have. He's got it. Is Rose a live underdog? The odds have Rose as at least a plus 400 underdog. If she can get it to the ground, I think she can cause a lot of problems for Joanna. Or is Joanna striking just too good to overcome? What say you? I mean, here's the deal on this one. Pardon me. I don't see it. Um, you know, forced to make a pick on this one, it's Jin Jacek. But... MMA is funny and has a certain way of surprising you when you least expect it. And this might be another one of those scenarios. I see a lot of people thinking that there's an upset in the making, that there's something brewing here. If I'm being candid with you, I don't see it, but there's lots of things I don't see. So don't take that to mean a whole lot. Um, all I can tell you is if you're asking me, do I hear, do I hear lots and lots of people you know, saying things like, um, "Oh, I think I think Joanna's going to do it this time. I think she's going to. I think she's going to make it." Plug this in here for just a second. Hang on. There we are. There we are. Check, check. 
There we go. Uh, yeah, I hear a lot of people saying that. I, I, I personally don't see that, but what does that mean? Nothing. Just I just to answer the question, I basically just feel like in the clinch, there might be something there. If she can tie up, there might be something there. I think she probably learned from the Kovalkiewicz experience. But you got to remember what Joanna is really gifted at. She's really gifted at winning rounds. I did a technique talk about her with Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright is, has been watching her since she was in her Muay Thai days and really has sort of followed the patterns of how she fights from that sport to this one. And one of the key sort of features about her is that she is very experienced. I mean, yes, the, the Jessica Penne fight was brutal. And yes, the Carla Esparza fight was just this, you know, total mind F. But the reality, the reality is she predominantly wins by winning rounds, by overcoming, by setting a pace, by working behind the jab, by moving, 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 moving. Unless you can find some way to disrupt that, um, it's just hard for me to see how you can win. And as talented as Nama Yunus is, and she is, and as she's gotten so much better, her technique is so much cleaner, I, I, again, I'm not declaring to you that's what's going to happen. I have no idea what's going to happen on Saturday. But there's just a part of me that's a little bit hesitant to be like I, I feel the same I feel the same upset brewing I, I I just don't but but I you know look I love seeing upsets in MMA it's one of my favorite things nothing would make me happier than not not to see, not to see Jacek lose necessarily I, I don't have anything against her but to see Namiyuna succeed to show us uh you know that that Jacek has a chink in the armor and that she found a way to exploit it and make it work for her this would be fantastic this would be an amazing thing you know. Uh, Luke, isn't it obvious Connor versus Tony should be next? Yes. Why would Connor fight Nate next for a title when Nate has not fought at 155 in two years? Because he can. If Connor loses to Tony, it is the perfect opportunity to do the Nate fight because that fight needs no title to be big. I agree. If Connor beats Tony, then you could still do the Nate fight because uh, no other 155er is going to have a strong argument for the next title shot. Habib pulls out a lot. And missed weight last time. Justin just got here. Eddie already lost to Connor badly. Yeah, I'd basically agree with this. But in the end, you know, he, he knows he's it, it looks like, based on his recent comments, that he knows, or at least he's suggesting the Tony fight could be next. But he could be suggesting that as a means of getting better negotiating terms out of Nate or God only knows. It the only thing I can breathe a sigh of relief about, and I'm so glad that much of this conversation has died down is that it finally looks like people are over the Malinaji stuff. Oh, my God. Please kill me. Kill me, kill me, kill me. Gouge my eyeballs out with a hot rod. Just zero interest in that. And it seems like, finally, inshallah, that most people are out on that idea as well. Jesus Christ, what a terrible idea that is. Uh, okay. Astros Dodgers tonight. I thought they were, I tuned in at the bottom of the six last night, and the Astros were up one nothing, and then uh, and they lost, I guess. So I'm gonna I'm rooting for the Astros because I hate LA and I hate the Dodgers. So there you go. But I don't have any strong opinion like feelings for the Astros. By the way, you know what's hilarious was that guy Goriel, Yori Goriel. He made the 
the racist, you know, slanted eye thing gesture to you, Darvish, and then called him Chinito. And then his excuse was, this is true, his excuse was, well, in Cuba, we just call all Asian people Chinito. Now, I know some people scoffed at that in American media. I can tell you from my limited experience in dealing with people from Latin America, that's true. Like, if you're Korean, they just call you Chino. If you're Chinese, they call you Chino. If you're Japanese, they just call you Chino. Chinito, of course, would be little boy, not just, or, or you know, little Japanese or, or little Chinese. Uh, the Ito at the end, so that's what that means. So, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't justify this number, but saying, well, we just call them all Chinito, uh, that's true. That, from my experience, that is absolutely a true thing that they do. Uh, GSP's return. Now that we're only a few days away from the return of GSP to the Octagon, how does it feel to you? Getting warmer. Getting warmer. Does it feel like a historic moment? Not yet. Is there a sense of nervousness about what is uh, going to happen? Not yet. Or do you feel almost underwhelmed by it? A little bit underwhelmed. I'm more actually believing it. I'm more focused on the story of Michael Bisping, to be honest. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but no, it doesn't. I mean, because the fight is kind of gimmicky. And so while it is historic for his return and the implications are potentially historic given what could happen, uh, I just feel like he needs a big moment there to really set that narrative in motion. Just showing up and having the fight and then facing off at the weigh-ins doesn't do it for me. But let's say he goes up there and, and let's say, and I know this seems unlikely because I even asked, I asked uh, Wonderboy Thompson, what are you expecting out of GSP? You know the guy really well. And he goes, I'm expecting a five-rounder. That was his answer. You know, I'm expecting a five-rounder. Um, but let's say, let's say St. Pierre goes out there and beats Bisping in the same way that Bisping beat Jay Huron. Now, if you haven't seen the Jay Huron fight, get on Fight Pass and go find it. GSP just mollywops him, okay? I mean, crushes him. Uh, uh, if he beats him like that, I think it would be this incredible historic return. You know, this moment where the best fighter ever, arguably, leaves, doesn't come back for four years, and then crushes the guy a weight class up like nothing. I think that would set in mo that would be the catalyst to set in motion all of these discussions about history and narrative and all that. But without that moment presently, it's not that it feels like it's nothing. It just doesn't, it's not, it's not, it's not a roaring blaze, you know. Someone says, as a Brazilian, I didn't really get upset with Covington. The first thing that came to my head was that guys like Anderson, Vitor, and Lyoto could have been way bigger than they are if they just talked a little more. Why do you think Brazilian fighters get so upset with trash talk? And will we ever see a Brazilian fighter become a true mainstream star? Well, Anderson Silva at his height was pretty popular, man, to be honest. Um, um, you know, there's been some pretty big guys here in America. Let's not be mistaken about that. Seems to me that they are absolutely clueless as to how the industry works, therefore being unable to capitalize on any good career opportunities that may appear if they can't keep winning all of their fights. Your thoughts on the subject overall, please. I mean, whoever thought a guy coming out of Ireland would be this incredible trash talker, incredible personality, incredible fighter at the same time, change the rules, change the game. Like if you had to, if you had to pick a country that was going to produce a guy to do that in MMA, would Ireland have been your first choice? Probably not. Maybe if you're Irish, you know, but for the rest of us, uh, it wouldn't exactly have been on the top of my list. I would have probably gone maybe UK, 
maybe North America, U.S., Canada, maybe Mexico, maybe Brazil. That was the obvious choices, you know. Um, and then lo and behold, someone comes out of Ireland and changes the whole game. You know, you never really know. I, I can't speak for perhaps there, and I don't know the answer to this, but perhaps there is something um, central to Brazilian culture that prohibits this kind of thing, or dissuades it, or I don't know, precludes it in some. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, why that's the case, but do I think it will eventually happen? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Eventually, someone's just going to be a joker. Someone is, or you might get someone who's second generation here who speaks Portuguese, who can then go back to Brazil with a Brazilian accent and bring a different sensibility. It seems entirely. Bohoshina, I don't think is that guy. He seems very much in line with what you would expect from a young, hungry, talented Brazilian fighter. But it's not some kind of iconoclast in the trash talking sense. No, I'm very surprised that we haven't interrupted yet. There's a bunch of guards over here looking at me, but so far so good. New York card has no New York, New Jersey stars. Have the UFC missed a trick by having no New York stars in the card? Well, there's not no. If I'm being fair to them, there is. Randy Brown and uh, Mickey Gall, they're on the card, so that's something. Um, but to your point, you know, in the headlining coming event, sort of a prominent role on the pay per view card. No, there's no one on there. I, I, you know, I don't really know what the major plan is there. I've talked about this in MMA beat a number of times. It just feels like in an age when you this is my point about the card, you know, it's like, is it badly promoted? No, look at the card, it's a great card. Is it is it promoted in a way where you feel like it's where it's maximally promoted? No, I don't really get that sense. I don't get the sense that we're maximally promoted here. And part of that could be getting, um, you know, GSP being from Montreal is not too, too far away. It's a train right away. You could do it by train. But, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of things they could be doing better. They could be putting Stipe Miocic on cards in Cleveland. They could be putting, you know, guys on cards where they're from. If they're going to go to Boston, who's going to be on that card? Maybe McGregor. He's Irish, so there's a crossover there. But I don't know. I, I, I just don't get it sometimes. Are their hands forced with the likes of JJ out, Rashad on decline, Wyman having time off following a grueling year, Volante being, in his words, terrible. I quit to having issues. Branch recently fought. Yeah, there's some of that um, for sure. But they've been doing this for a long time. They just pick. I told you before, there's one side of the business that picks the city, and then they tell the fight side, book around it, rather than working more in conjunction. So to your point, yes, there are some guys who are out. It makes scheduling issues a little bit more difficult to overcome. But if there was a little bit more integration between the business side and the fight side in terms of planning around these kinds of things, you might see more of it in a more effective way. Oh, man, back there cleaning uh it's a shame frankie Edgar versus holloway couldn't be on the card right right i mean they couldn't have substituted one of the fights on this card for that one that one for this one i just don't get it uh the locality versus the world is usually a good selling point it works in brazil doesn't it especially at the gate and it seems like the ufc either do not have enough talent for nyc or cannot get enough together um Someone says, I have a crappy mic. No, I don't. I might have a slow internet connection, and I I have been 
when I didn't beg for a new chair, they gave me one. But I'm also not this donkey. Someone says, do I have a net worth of $47 million? God, I wish. <laughs> I wish. No. I do not have $47 million. Sorry. I'll happily take it, though. All right, true, false. McGregor KOs Ferguson. Man, that's as true as it's not true. Um, I'll say true. No, I'll say false. I don't know. I'll say uh, Ferguson submits McGregor. False. Gaethje finishes Alvarez. That's probably true. Uh, Barboza versus Habib goes to decision. Ooh, true. Perry versus Till doesn't happen in 2018. False. Michael Bisping retires as champion. I'll guess false. John Jones gets a lesser punishment than most expect. True. Daniel Cormier loses again before he retires. Probably true. Henry Cejudo one day is flyweight champion. True. Robert Whitaker will be the undisputed champion in 2018. True. Conor McGregor fights more than three more times. So four or more times in the UFC. True, but that one is hard to say with any degree of even close confidence. The question, uh, can MMA still claim to be the fastest growing sport in the world? I, I heard this said as part of the UFC's promotion in the UK. It is definitely not the fastest growing sport in the world. I'm not sure it's even growing, much less the fastest one. There was a time that was true, not true anymore. You almost could, I mean, it's so globally popular that saying this is sort of crazy, but in terms of its growth in the United States, soccer might be the fastest growing sport here. You know? Bro, these donkeys just make so much noise. Uh, okay. Someone says, is MMA finally getting back on track? The Jones, Rousey, McGregor era is two-thirds over. Not quite. With new stars emerging like Till, Perry, Gall? Oh, I think you mean Gall. Holloway and others. Is the UFC finally hitting their stride with stars re-emerging? Well, none of those guys you mentioned are stars yet. Now, there's a new crop of really interesting fighters coming up, but we need to see if they can become major household names. And that part hasn't happened yet. Now, that's a process, of course. It takes time. Um, to me, the bigger issue is not do you have a new crop of fighters who are awesome that hardcore fans love. You know, Demetrius Johnson is... Uh, okay, you look at Demetrius Johnson, you look at Yuani and Jacek. Everyone like craps on DJ for being this guy who, well, we know he's really good, but you know he he's not a big sell. Neither is Jacek. She's been on big ass cards. She's not a household name either. There's this problem happening where you're getting people who are really, really talented that resonate very strongly with a hardcore fan base, and there's no real carryover to the. Um, casual audience not one that's very immediate in any case it's taking a lot of time and so you have to wonder what does that mean and how do we fix that like how do we how do we get out of that problem uh i, I don't really know the answer to that so you're bringing up guys who are really interesting and that we all like 
But until they become as big as a Jones or a Rousey or McGregor, if they ever can be, it's not a it's not a one for one substitution. Um, so something to pay attention to. Uh, instant replay. The New York State Athletic Commission just introduced a new instant replay policy. The ref can now review a fight ending sequence. And by the way, once they look at instant replay, they can't restart the fight. So if they use it, fight's over. Most of us remember Musasi Weidman and think it's good to have some clarity around use of instant replay. What do you think? Sure. There are most, mostly pros, but what about the potential cons? For example, well, what happened if instant replay was used in the Gunnar Nelson Pons fight? Pons eye poked Gunny in the fight ending sequence, but is it enough to disqualify him? Maybe not enough to disqualify him, but they could have taken away the TKO win. Right? And also, it's the fight ending sequence. They'd have to show that the eye poke occurred right in close proximity. So there might be some issues there. But um, yeah, it's not perfectly satisfying. It's frankly a very limited use. This is not some wide ranging application of this thing. They're using it in a very narrow context. The question is, is that narrow context an improvement? Yes. Could it rectify some bad situations? Yes. But does it really solve a lot of other potential issues that can arise that you can imagine that we've seen? No. No, it wouldn't. It would not fix those. So it's a step in the right direction. It's There's nothing bad about it other than the scope of its use is very, very limited. It's just that you, you know when, when you need to get things right, this gives them a little bit more space um, to be able to make those kinds of calls. And so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, I, I, and frankly, we got to be glad that the commissions are even attempting to do this, you know? It seems so minimal and it seems so obvious and basic, and I suppose that it is, but at least they're doing it. At least they're out there trying. At least they're pushing, you know, technological integration into decision-making. Um, Chad Mendez. Luke, when Chad Mendez was suspended, you mentioned in your live chat how lots of people had written to you stating the excuse he had used was false, pointing out no psoriasis cream was licensed or tested for the substance he mentioned. Why did nothing ever come of the story? And should the MMA media have done more to investigate? <coughs> um, if this was a similar scenario involving a track and field or other pro level athletes, difficult to imagine the respective media letting the story go, e.g. stories about Lance Armstrong suspected doping prior to him being found guilty. Is the MMA media too reliant on relationships with fighters to the point that it won't perform any investigative-type journalism that could prove damning to a fighter? Well, number one, we talked about in this live chat, so, you know, um, there's something to be said for that, I suppose. But more than that, no, like, what, like, what keys to the kingdom does Chad Mendez hold? Uh not here to say he's irrelevant necessarily, but he's not some major power player that can prevent MMA journalists from doing their job. I just, I, you guys have got, got to realize something. If you come to these media days, I know it sounds like a cop out. You're like, I do that job for free. Well, I wouldn't, I, I should get paid for it. And so should you, if you did it. But here's the point. These guys here doing this, they're all one man bands, man. They're all one man bands. They're shooting photos. They're shooting videos. They're writing stories. They're doing Facebook lives and everything. It's hard to do all this stuff. Now, not everybody, but a lot of people here. A lot of people here are trying to fill a number of hats. And it just kind of gets to them a little bit. And it just reduces the amount of time they have to do other things. Also, you saw it abandoned for two years. It seems fairly definitive. In the case of Leo de Machida, lots of people, including Ian Kidd, spoke out about how 7-Keto DHEA does not need to be 
um, that there are certainly some dubious grounds by which that is listed as an anabolic agent, considering it has no anabolic profile whatsoever. Um, and so they raised some concerns about that. But with Mendez, it just felt like the evidence for breaking the rules was pretty clear. He can say whatever he wants about the cream, but I don't think anyone really believed him. So there wasn't this need to debunk his excuse outright. Um, certainly, there would be nothing wrong with challenging it. I don't think, I just don't, I think here's the problem. I, no one really knows a lot about anti-doping in terms of the science of it. Few journalists have time. It's an opportunity cost. If you write that, you can't do something else. And it just seemed implausible and no one really cared. Should someone have written something? Sure. Could someone have written something? Of course. Of course. Um, but given those factors, to me, it's not all that surprising. Nobody, I didn't think people believed him when he said that. But maybe they did. I don't know. Uh, it's 2.15, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. You can tweet me at LThomasNews, and you can use the hashtag chat wrappers, and I will get to them right now. Uh, okay, most of the comebacks of fighters have been bad. Could you give an example of what a perfect comeback PR looks like? Jesus. Uh, well, until he got marred by the uh, USADA stuff, Brock's comeback was pretty good. Couture had some time away. He retired and came back. Remember that? Floyd Mayweather has retired a number of times and come back successfully. So those are some comebacks that are interesting. Um, this is, this is, so Couture and Mayweather, I would point to. How happy were you when you saw Bradley Beal slap Draymond Green? Man, I cannot stand Draymond Green. Um, and when the Wizards were fighting with him, I was like the happiest man on earth. I cannot stand that clown. And I was so happy to see him, you know, ejected from the game, even though we lost Beal, but still. With the apparent demotion of Buckles to a Muay Thai coach, do you see him leaving Alpha Male after Saturday? Great coach, in my opinion. Super great coach. Amazing coach. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand what's going on with that team, you know. Faber made it seem like it was totally normal, and he knows that team better than I do. And yet there's just I, I, something off about it I don't understand. This is just some stuff I just don't understand. In MMA, it seems that only the only way to sell fights is to talk, talk trash. Is there any examples of fighters selling fights without trash talk? George St. Pierre. Could you do an interview in your channel with someone who knows more about the Chinese MMA market? I would love to. I don't know who that would be. Chatri Sichotong, but he is Thai. I don't know how much he really... I mean, the fact that Thai is not a, a, a limiting factor, but I don't really know how much he knows about the Chinese market it's a good question i would like to know more myself as terrible as usada is they aren't coming to your house when are you going to run a steroid cycle i don't know man i told myself that i would at least investigate trt when i turn 40 so i've got a couple of years but not yet and i really have no problem like taking trt not on it yet but well i have to tell you i cut down on drinking substantially it's made a big difference for me I've been having much better gym sessions, much better uh, energy throughout the course of a workout, better sleep, obviously. Uh, uh, lost a few LBs. It's, you know, nothing too substantial, but 
definitely cutting down the drinking has been has been really good. Um, someone says, "Is Rhonda really done?" I don't know why everyone assumes Rhonda is done unless Rhonda herself makes statements to that effect. She hasn't. Uh, even if she's not done, the game has kind of passed her by. You know, we talk about Demi and Maya's wrestling game being figured out. You know, no one's really figured out her judo other than to say clinch, break, and strike. But in that sense, she's kind of also been figured out as well. So, true or false, Bohashinia will finish Hendricks. I think so. I think so. But big questions for Bohashinia. Will you say hello to Danny Austin 9 for me? No. Uh, am I wrong to compare outraged articles that include videos of fighter comments to those that condemn MMA violence with KOs? Wait, what? Am I wrong to compare outraged articles that include videos of fighter comments to those that condemn MMA violence with KOs? I'm not sure I understand what you're saying, that there's some kind of comparison to make between... Oh, like if a fighter says like the N-word and there's an outrage article about it to the people who don't understand MMA who condemn violence with KOs. No, no, I don't think so. KOs are just certainly not palatable to everyone. They're like MMA is not for everybody, but it is for some. But the market of people who um, either like or don't mind casual use of the N-word is not one we want to keep around. Uh, did you notice that Mendez, Benavidez, or Palmer haven't taken sides? Iwana and Wonderboy are the only MSG repeats. Mendez, Benavidez, and Palmer haven't taken sides. Yeah, sure. Uh, in a political climate of legitimate hate, is it wise to have Connor's poor word choice outweigh his support for LGBTQ rights? Here's what I would say about that. I find his apology very satisfactory. I understand what he's talking about. We go, and it's still fading. I grew up in an era where we use the six-letter F word constantly. I've used it a gajillion times. I've shouted rap lyrics with it. I've called my friends that. Um, I grew up at a time when it just wasn't that big of a deal. And over time, it became one. You can have an objection about that, but it did. Do I really think Conor McGregor is a homophobe in some kind of deeply dramatic way? I do not. I just think I took his explanation at face value. His larger body of work is, speaks for itself. This was a slip up, but he said it was a slip up, and everyone should just move on. And I'm happy to move on, too. Um, Shab is right. Alpha males sound bitter that TJ left. Faber looks like a puppet master in the background. I've not heard his comments about that, but I'd be curious to hear. Uh, certainly, you know, TJ hasn't, I mean, yes, he's had up and downs, but not, it doesn't look like to me like his game has slipped at all. Depth of the card isn't great. Donks are going to be donks. One of the best cards ever. It is a very good card. Convince me to buy a Google Pixel. Well, the Google Pixel 2 is already even better, but for me, here's what I liked. I had the Galaxy Note 4. This was a while ago. I really, really liked the stylus. The stylus has been... Not everyone uses it and everyone likes it. I really like the stylus. I like some of the ways in which you could open up the back of the of the uh, note to then substitute the battery so you could just change those out. Um, and I really had a great use of the stylus. The bloatware from Samsung was a bit annoying, but it was a really great phone. If the Google Pixel had a stylus, which would, to me, add to the functionality of it, it would be the perfect phone. It lacks that, but what it doesn't lack is, number one, 
uh, and you can already get this, but it just seamlessly integrates unlimited uploads with photos and videos to your Google Photos account, which, by the way, makes things really easy to arrange. I really like that. There's no bloatware on it. The Google Assistant works actually pretty well. The battery life is incredible. And really, this has been something for me in terms of photography. During the day, your latest iPhone iteration might be better. But in terms of low light, in terms of taking photos at night, I don't give a shit what anybody says. The Google Pixel is by far your best camera. I have, I have tested the latest Samsung. I've tested, um, uh, I haven't tested the iPhone X, but the iPhone 8. Uh, or I've seen the test with the iPhone 8. I've not tested that one. Uh, but the iPhone 7 um, and my Google Pixel, which is the old generation, not even the new one, takes incredible, incredible low light um, uh, stuff, uh, pictures. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So it's a really functional device. Um, it's a powerful device. And it's a really, it's not sleekly designed. It doesn't look all super cool. But I just feel like it really gets the job done in a way that uh, a lot of other phones I've had have not. But if the if the Note, what are we up to, Note 9? If the Note 9 could do things like that, I would go back to the Note. If, again, either if the Pixel had a stylus or the Note 9 had less bloatware and things like that, those would be my top two choices. What do you think are Rose's chances against Joanna? I think she'll put up a credible challenge. I just have a hard time seeing her stop Joanna unless Joanna has really taken a ton of abuse or is really getting shop-worn, and have a hard time seeing her win three rounds out of five. But let's see what let's see what Nami Yunus has cooking, you know? Um, look, if we lost Cody versus TJ, how bad would that be for the card? Bad but not back-breaking. What would be back-breaking would be to lose the main event. If they fight, do you think that Connor will have a say or influence in Tony's purse pay-per-view? Yeah, of course. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Does Rocky need one more fight before the Nunez fight? A unanimous decision win over a retired fighter and a losing streak isn't ideal. I think it was more just a function of that they were out of choices. They were out of um, you know suitable candidates. Less than it's like, oh my God, look how meritocratic this resume is. It was more just, you know, hey, we, we, we're, we're running out of people. Um, let's see. What else am I missing here? What advice would you give for a BJJ beginner whose cardio sucks? Keep training. Does stationary bike do nothing or do you have to roll 24-7? I don't like rolling 24-7. I, I, I didn't train once in the month of October. Unbearable bad. Um, no, that's not true. I think I trained twice in October. Yeah. Twice, yes. Um, the, look, there are some guys who can just roll and roll and roll and roll. I find that when that I, I've tried that, because, you know, Marcelo Garcia is like, I don't do any strength and conditioning. I just roll. Um, what I found is that I get really just beat up doing that. You know, I, my body just can't handle the injury load from that. It just makes me uncomfortable, hard to get out of bed. I've gotten plantar fasciitis and all kinds of jacked up fingers, getting dislocated from, from grip fighting, and it's just bad. I, I'm not – I can't – I have to limit the amount of rounds that I do. Um, and I personally believe this. This works for me. Cardio does nothing for you in terms of injury prevention. Now, I might, if you're losing weight, that can, you know, put less stress on your joints and – generally create a more favorable athletic environment and a healthier environment for you. But 
in terms of injury prevention, it is strength training what you need. And so to me, when I was going hardcore six days a week and I tailored two of those days for strength training, I now do all six strength training. Um, but like when I say I didn't train, I mean, I, I lifted weights four or five days a week, but I, I didn't do jujitsu hardly at all. Substituting that made a huge difference in the way I felt. A huge difference. But if your cardio sucks, the strength training won't help you. So for me, if you if your body can handle the injury load, train more, train more, train more. I don't find stationary bikes do a whole lot. Running helps. Um, but just manage your injury load. So for me, eat healthy, drink lots of water, get good sleep. That really matters. Train as hard as you can and then figure out what you need to do to supplement it. Swimming might be better for you. A certain amount of rolls per week might be better for you. You need to measure exactly how much you need to train each week and then make some adjustments accordingly. Dr. Mike Isratel has a really good um, video about this on how to balance complementary, or I should say, yeah, complementary training outside of jujitsu with jujitsu. Do you agree that Tyron Woodley should get the winner of Bisping versus GSP? And if so, how well do you see it selling pay-per-view wise? If, if, if GSP comes out and has a monumental win, uh, it could sell really great. Um, even with Bisping, it might sell okay. But let's see how this one does first so we can make some kind of baseline judgment. It probably does Woodley versus B GSP probably does half of what Bisping versus GSP does, um, whatever that number might be. Um, yeah, that's about what I would say. And so it says, is the UFC pay-per-view model obsolete? Seems people want it free cable or with a subscription service. Will UFC move to, to, to more digital cable? I really think so. Um, there's just not as much of an appetite for pay-per-view as there used to be in the sense of a continual thing that people are willing to put up with. They'll go for the big one-off. That seems to be very much in play. But the routine thing seems to be uh, a bit of an issue. And I don't know if this comparison is fair because I don't watch WWE, but uh, a guy who produces my radio show is a big WWE fan, and he feels like the UFC is in a very similar position to what the WWE was prior to the WWE launching their network where um, the pay-per-views weren't really doing all that well. They were having trouble creating big stars. And when they went all in the network, not that it exactly solved this problem, but if you've got a million-plus international subscribers to your own proprietary service, this basically can, and, you know, additional means of revenue by other television deals and in this country and many others and, you know, merchandise or whatever. But that that model can really, really work as a way of getting, moving away from the old model of pay-per-view TV to subscription service, something about TV rights fees. Um, you know, I've heard from several people now that the UFC is having a bit of a rough go and renegotiating their television contracts. I don't know how the UFC gets from where they are to a million plus on Fight Pass subscribers. But once they got there, I think they'd be in really, really good shape. I think it would fundamentally change the product because you wouldn't be relying upon having title fights in North America all the time. You could do whatever you want. You could move around. You'd be mobile. You could really just, you could just experiment in any way you really wanted to. I just don't know how you get from here to there so easily. That's going to be a really, really difficult challenge for them. WWE kind of just went all in and had some struggles at first, but once they crossed the million subscriber threshold, they were fine. They're also a public company, so there were some additional pressures, but um, eventually they need to end up there. How they get there and how soon, I don't know. All right. We have to go. I appreciate you guys watching.
I can't believe it. We went this whole time and the donks didn't bother us. Not that much anyway. So subscribe to MMA Fighting below. Give this video a like. Um, Ariel's here and Esther and Casey are here. Mark Romundi is here. So look out for wrap-up videos. Look out for weigh-in stuff, workout stuff. You name it. We're going to have tons and tons of coverage here on MMA Fighting. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com if you have any additional questions or comments. And until next time, stay frosty.